Good afternoon and welcome to the Mershon Center. Uh, this is the first in an annual series of lectures on Islam and uh, democracy in which the Mershon Center, together with the Science Department and the Studies uh, Center, um, and the Honors and Scholars Program, too, uh, bring in uh, guest speakers uh, to inform us about uh, the relationship between Islam and democracy or broad, broader issues having to do with Islam and uh, politics uh, throughout the uh, Muslim world. Uh, so this is uh, our first speaker in this year's series. Uh, his name is Brendan Baker, and he is a professor of international politics at Trinity College and director of the International Council for Middle Studies in Washington and D.C. He is an internationally recognized authority on the Arab and Islamic world. His books include Cultural Cleansing in Iraq. So he's not going to talk about Iraq today, but I'm sure he'll be happy to talk about Iraq in the Q&A period. Um, and Islam Without Fear, um, Egypt and the New Islamists, uh, which is, I think, the major uh, book that he has written and presents the point of view of many new Islamic entrepreneurs, <coughs> especially uh, in Egypt. Um, Baker consults regularly for the State Department, the Defense Department, USAID, and other government agencies and private foundations. Um, <coughs> he speaks fluent Arabic and has traveled, lived, and worked in the Middle East uh, since the 1960s. And indeed, he said to me last night, and I was envious as somebody who has similar kinds of aspirations about Indonesia, he said to me last night that uh, he thinks that he has lived as much in Egypt as he has in the United States during mm -hmm. all the years that he has been here. I can't make that claim. I try hard, but I definitely <laughs> live myself. He even has an apartment in Egypt uh, in Cairo and, uh, and uh, so spends a lot of time here. Right, today, uh, he will speak to us on Egypt, Islam, revolution, and uh, prospects for democracy. Please join me in welcoming him. Well, thank you very much for that kind introduction. I am so jealous. This is such an extraordinary facility. You guys, it's a beautiful campus, by the way, as well. So then sort of topping it off to have such a, a wonderful, wonderful center. And I would like to uh, thank you for the, the, warm, uh, the warm greeting. I've enjoyed it. This is my first visit to your city, and I've enjoyed it immensely. Uh, it's my, it, I have to say, it's much more than I expected. I'm not sure why. But I, you know, it's always good to have maybe a little bit lower expectations. And then to walk uh, through some of the sections of the city, it's been really quite, uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, but it is uh, Egypt uh, that I want to talk about. And I do want to talk about uh, Egypt's, the extraordinary events uh, which have brought Egypt to the attention of the entire world. Uh, and from my point of view, Egyptians uh, performed a miracle in the public squares of their cities in January 2011. The whole world watched absolutely mesmerized as Egyptians, both Christians and Muslims, brought spiritual power into those public spaces. It was, it was an extraordinary thing, and it remains an extraordinary thing uh, to see and to be a part of. Millions of people joined hands in Egypt throughout the country to crash through formidable barriers of violence and fear. The tyrant Hosni Mubarak, who had ruled the country cruelly for three decades, was swept away. 
It's absolutely no wonder that Egypt's revolution confounded the pundits and the academic specialist experts, confounded the Mossad and the CIA operatives who swarm all over Cairo, and even the countless brave souls who themselves participated in the revolution. No planning, no calculus of politics or economics, no abstract speculations of tipping points that tally accumulating causes, or swans of any colors that tell us to expect the unexpected. None of those specu speculations can diminish the absolutely wondrous character of the events that transpired. Those averse to metaphysical explanations, they're not comfortable talking about <laughs> God and Islam and Christianity and Judaism, will have great difficulty in understanding, I think, what happened. Quite simply, revolution in Egypt was absolutely impossible. Consider the odds. Hosni Mubarak was backed by the world's most powerful uh, you know, state, the United States, for 30 years. America provided everything that our man in Cairo required to keep him in power. He himself has a military of half a million, a security force of a million and a half. The job of we had both for both was in fact to protect the regime. So that was uh, the, you know, the target. We have to ask ourselves what forces mobilized and how was mobilization possible against such a formidable leviathan. Uh, we know now that the spark came from Tunisia. An underemployed but educated young Tunisian find no work, had a vegetable cart, a fruit cart, it wasn't properly licensed, it was taken away from him, he was struck and humiliated. It was the last straw. He couldn't stand it. He set his own body on fire. And that gave us the first powerful face of this improbable resistance. Next we go to Cairo. We go to Alexandria and we go to Khaled Said, a young, beautiful person, a computer kind of specialist who was savagely beaten to death. And as we all know, we all have our cameras, we all have our ways of recording. This was recorded. He was slaughtered, really, in front of family and friends. And that face of Khaled Said, within hours, there was a website. We are all, Khaled Said. We're all Khaled Said. This was extraordinary as a mobilization. And that's where we, when we first saw the mobilization possibilities uh, of the internet. A third face I'll give you of, this imp of these improbable revolutionaries, Asma Mahfouz. Asma Mahfouz, you know, the older I get, the younger you guys look, I have to say. She looked about 14 to me. I'm sure she's probably, at the time she made the clip I'm going to talk about, I'm sure she was in her 20s. An extraordinary video. It's just this young woman, she's wearing the hijab, you know, her face is not covered, but her hair is covered. No back, you know, no props, no, just simply looking directly into the camera and speaking to Egyptians. She's speaking in the wake of what happened in Tunisia. And she announces to all of Egypt, she says, 
And she uses a kind of vocabulary that's really extraordinarily adroit. She says, and she's, because she's addressing Egyptians, particularly Egyptian men. She says to them, look, I am going to Tahrir Square, and I am going to Tahrir Square tomorrow. And all of my life, you men have been telling me you're protecting me. She said, well, I'm going to be in the square tomorrow. If you are men, you will be there, and you will protect me. In either case, I'm going. I'm not going to light myself on fire. If the regime you know, chooses to do that, I'm undeterred. I'm going, and I expect to see you there. She's looking right at them in the camera. It is an extraordinary video. You can Google it. You'll still find that these things are archived. Her name is Asma Mahfouz. And she, you may have heard about her because one of the extraordinary things about the Egyptian events is the way in which they have really impacted the rest of the world, including us. So you've all heard, obviously, these various Occupy movements. They're beginning to fizzle, but you know, still some hope with those. She gave um, workshops in New York, Asma Mahfouz, for how do you organize a resistance uh, for young Americans. So this is a, a a revolutionary figure with a kind of global uh, status. The point, though, that I want to make is none of the, we can't identify any of these peoples as leaders of the Egyptian revolution. None of them caused the revolution. Uh, what really happened is they, they issued an invitation to revolution, and they were astonished that people came. You know, my apartment is right in downtown Cairo. I live like, like three minutes from Tahrir Square. I live on another square. Cairo is organized sort of like uh, Paris or something, you know, with the round uh, kind of squares and that radiate out. Mine is, uh, is something called Talat Harp. <coughs> I live there. And from my balcony, because the squares, as you can probably imagine, are useful places to hold demonstrations. So from my balcony, I could see the uh, movement which was taking, really taking hold. The real beginning of a kind of organized opposition to the Mubarak regime was something called kifaya in Arabic. Kifaya in Arabic is one of these wondrous slogans. Egyptians were, are, are really an ingenious people, are extraordinarily creative. The art forms, the linguistic forms that, that occurred in Tahrir, it was just, it was an absolute marvel uh, to behold. Anyway, kifaya simply means one word. It means enough. It really means we've had enough. We're not taking it anymore. And these were the first demonstrations. Now, I could see the demonstrations from my balcony. What, what do they look like? You would have maybe 150 people demonstrating, mostly middle class, mostly well-dressed, mostly clutching their cell phones. You know, that was pretty much the scene. And then around them would be something like 2,000 of the security police. These are the Amnon Marchesi the central security forces. And there would be a couple of thousand of them. So, you know, you would really have the sense, we had this sort of sense with Saddam as well, that these dictators are so entrenched that there's no way you can, you, you can move them. I used to take walks, I still do, in Cairo every morning. Now, Cairo is an extraordinarily challenging city. You don't walk easily in Cairo, so I get up early. I actually read this about Nagib Mahfouz. Nagimov was a Nobel laureate in literature. He had this practice of walking very early in the morning. You know, he, he had a little bit too early for me. His was like four or five. 
And of course, he's this great writer. <coughs> so being very clever, I said to myself, if I walk early in the morning, I too <laughs> will be a great writer. So I t I've been, I'm still trying. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm still trying. Anyway, the relevance of that is I get up every morning and I walk through the city. What I wanted to give you is just a little bit of a feel for walking through the city of Cairo. There are security police everywhere. They're all dressed in black. They all have a, a shield, and they all have a club. They all have clubs, truncheons, and they're everywhere. You just go around any corner, and you find the truck, and they're packed into the truck. They're a little bit packed like sardines. They're young, they're poor, they're illiterate, and they're undernourished. You know, they're taken from the villages. You can <coughs> one of the nice things about Egypt. You meet a guy, just say Muhammad, or Ahmed, or Hamadi, or Hamuda. Everybody's got some version, or Ahmed, it's some version of Muhammad, the name. So I walk through the streets, you know, Zayak Muhammad, how you doing Muhammad? Zayak Ahmed, how you doing? And after a while you get to know these people and you realize they have no clue where they are. They have no clue, uh, you know, what their role is. They just know that if told to attack, they better attack or they'll be killed. So this is the Amnon Markazi. So this is really, this was this extraordinary force and it was just inconceivable that that regime could be toppled. So what actually happened? You had the young people issue the call for revolution. Now one thing is important to note, Egypt is not a place without a tradition of rebellion and a tradition of upheavals, especially the labor movement was extraordinarily important. One of the important uh, groups of young people, April 6 movement, linked their effort early before the outbreak in January of the revolution, had linked their effort to a workers' strike in Mahala or Cobra. This is a sort of a center of the textile industry. So there was this tradition of unrest, worker unrest, but there was no coordination for it. So what the young people did, using the electronic technology, because we don't want to reduce the Egyptian revolution to electronic technology. It was simply an instrument. They used it, they used it very cleverly. It, they they uh, issued this invitation, and what was absolutely striking <laughs> is that people came, and they came by the hundreds of thousands. It was an extraordinary thing to experience, and it still is, because periodically, I was in Cairo all last summer, uh, 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 Fridays are the days for the demonstrations, and it really is just like human waves moving through the city. The whole city sort of comes alive after the Friday prayer. So you've got a group already assembled, they come out of the mosques, and then shh, headed to Tahrir. So it was these waves of people that just proved, and everybody was there. It wasn't only the young and beautiful people. They started it, but it, well, they issued the invitation. But everybody came. People with kids on their shoulder, women carrying bags, just into the streets. You would say to them, what are you doing? Why are you going there? And it was always the same thing. We've had enough. We've lost everything. We have no future. We can't feed our families. We've had enough. We're already, I said to him, you know, you're, you're, they're going to kill you. We're already, they're already killing us. This was the response. So it was that kind of momentum on a mass level that just proved absolutely unstoppable. I have two uh, commentators on these events I'd like to mention. Uh, and what I want to say is there is something really quite mysterious about this. Because you know, you take all those examples I gave you, all of that's happened before. Young people beaten, uh, people issuing caught, but it didn't move. 
when this, when a revolution occurred in Iran, Michel Foucault talked about spiritual power. None of Foucault's comments was the source of greater derision, humiliation, making fun of him. He eventually withdrew from it and wouldn't touch it. Zizek pronounced the same thing for the Egyptian Revolution. He said, look, he talked about Egypt and Tunisia. There is something here that we can't quite put our fingers on. Something happened, we don't fully understand it. I pronounce it uh, a miracle. He then backed away from it. What's striking to me, yeah, people started backing away almost immediately, except the Egyptians. November 2011, they're back in the streets. I was in Cairo that could see it. And again, these massive, massive numbers. So there really is something extraordinary about it. I think it does have this spiritual dimension. I will talk later about some of the political economy factors, uh, the uh, neoliberal uh, project for Egypt, Egypt as a kind of poster boy of neoliberalism. You know, you can identify those factors, but they're not enough to explain what happened. Uh, that's the point. Uh, and what I wanted to say about it is that um, this uh, dimension, and we're talking about Egypt, it's a Muslim-majority country. Egyptians overwhelmingly are Muslim, they're overwhelmingly are Sunni. So this is, in, in, a, in that sense, an Islamic revolution. When we say, because it's a, bi, it's a revolution by Muslims, and it had uh, that character, some of the qualities of the revolution, if it was, you put it in a different setting, it would have had very different, a very different character. So that's what I want to insist on. When we say Islamic, we immediately think of the Islamic movements. The Muslim Brotherhood does not own Islam. <coughs> the Azhar does not own Islam. There were Azharis, there were Brotherhood figures there, there were Salafi figures, the new group that we're fearful of. When I get calls to you know, talk about what's happening uh, you know, in terms of the Islamic current, now everybody's interested, no longer the Brotherhood, we're kind of used to them, now it's the Salafis. The Salafis are a more, I don't know exactly what word to use for them, they're extreme in some ways. They focus, from my point of view, on some of the less significant parts of the faith, but they're really mobilizing people in this incredible way. One of my last experiences in, in Egypt, the Salafis called a Friday you know, day of protest, and the Salafis, they have a distinctive look. They look a little bit ethereal. They're kind of uh, like white, and they, they were originally just on the satellites because the regime was so repressive, and now they've hit the ground, so we can now see them. So they were organizing a demonstration in Tahrir, so I thought to myself, I have to see this. It was really extraordinary. I felt like I was swimming in the Salafis. They came from all over the country. Again, the numbers, I mean, Tahrir is huge. It's a huge, it was filled. There was no place. I couldn't figure out what was happening. I was sort of walking. I couldn't figure out what was happening because I kept hearing these crunches. It was water bottles under my feet, but I couldn't look down because it was so crowded. You know? So the, this current, this Islamic current, this Islamic presence is extraordinarily powerful. It is, but what I want to say, it's not just the movement. It's ordinary people with ordinary commitments. Islam has a worldly character. Human beings in Islam have, uh, there's a notion of the human being, the role, uh, khalif, uh, uh, you know, the, the vice-regent of God. The job of a human being is to complete God's work on earth. This is the role. It's called istikhlef, that notion, that it's a very worldly notion. 
So to build community, it's not a personal thing, relationship to God. No, it's to build community. You are religious by the way you live in community, with the values of community. You cannot be a Muslim alone. You know, my nephew visited, an Egyptian nephew. Went to my house in Williamstown. I was in Williamstown then. Never forgot it. It was an extraordinary thing. He says, uncle, it's a very nice place, but where are the people, first of all? You know, you're from Cairo, you're used to lots of people, no people. So that was his first question. Second question was, Uncle, how do I pray? What's the direction? Oh, God. Yeah, this, I, <laughs> I was not a big help with this. So I immediately call around the Muslims in the little town. We have a Baluchi, we have a Pakistani, we have a, so, and, and they come. And they're in my house trying to figure out exactly. Where, and, you know, it was a little community right there. You see what I mean? And that's, that's a critical part of Islam, that you are a Muslim only with other Muslims. You express your religious faith through the contributions to community. This is absolutely uh, critical uh, to the notion. Okay. I want to just comment. So that's the setting this extraordinary event. And then to say we missed it, and then, you know, many of us here are academics, to say the academics missed it. And just comment a little bit about that. Why is it that the scholars of all Arab countries, right, if you do the bibliographic searches, which I know you guys are assigned to do, you will find tons of stuff on Egypt. It is the Arab country of choice uh, for the most part. And yet, by and large, uh, the scholars got it wrong. The scholars didn't have a sense of this as even vaguely uh, a possibility. I want to talk just a little bit about the literature, because the literature on Egypt continues to be really quite, uh, uh, you know, it, it's just, there are just so many books. I recently did a book review, and it's like nine books or something. It's just it's this constant uh, production. There's a great big one by the Council on Foreign Relations, and it's called The New Arab Revolt. And if you want to get a sense of how we sort of so consistently misread the Arab world, misread Egypt, misread the larger Islamic world, I recommend the book. But I, what I would say about the book, you know, there's this notion of thread that runs through a lot of the literature. The best way to know yourself is with the encounter with the other. And the phenomenologists especially have pushed this line. I think it's been a very pernicious idea. And what you find, especially in the New Arab Revolt, uh, one of my favorite uh, intellectual figures, George Kennan, this conflicted Cold War uh, warrior. Kennan wrote and uh, you know, became cr very critical of American policy, critical even of his own containment notion, but a very important figure. One of the things I liked about Kennan was a notion, a warning to Americans especially. He said about us is that we love our enemies. And we're kind of enraptured with our enemies. And we love to elaborate their faults and their flaws and the horrors they perpetuate and so forth. And he was sort of saying, this you know, articulation, this ex exaggerated articulation of the enemy is extraordinarily dangerous because it's a way for us not to look at our own faults and our own flaws. And I think we see a lot of that uh, now with this Islamic bestiary that has emerged to replace uh, the Cold War notions 
of communism in that sense. So I recommend that book to you, The New Arab Revolt. It's extraordinary, it's very, very big, and it gets it all wrong. There's a whole book on Egypt. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. Read the Ajami essay, Fouad Ajami. If you want to know what's going wrong, just read. It's a wonderful essay. It's just absolutely terrific. If you are a believer in America, America with no mind, you know, it's all about our effort. You know, it's all been wonderful aid programs, fostering democracy. Every line out of Washington, he endorses. And so, what's wrong with the Egyptians? They're falling over themselves, inflicting wounds on themselves. You know, it's the complete bath. If you want to get cleaned off and you're American, just read this Ajami. We have no flaws. It's all their flaws, these self-inflicted flaws. And that's, what that's the framing of this volume, trying to understand what's happening. The big book on Egypt is by someone called Stephen Cook. The same stuff. He op it's so contemptuous. He opens it. He's he met this guy on the internet, believe it or not. His name is Hassan. He's riding through the city with Hassan, commenting on the city. He tells us he speaks Arabic. You get no evidence of that at all in the book. You read 40 pages of, of references. None of them are, are Arab, Arab references. And he talks to us about Hassan. The, he, he drives through the city. It's all oddities. It's all curiosities. It's a kind of, you know, and the pornographic would be too strong. But it's a little bit, you know, this kind of, uh, you, you, and this is the Council on Foreign Relations. And this is their book on Egypt. So it's really been uh, extraordinarily disappointing uh, to see how the scholars have uh, responded. I've been hanging out with some of the academics who are here. I mean, you have a wonderful faculty, and some of them are here. And I was talking to Margaret, I was talking to Carter, I was talking, of course, to Bill. And, uh, you know, just kind of reflecting on the work we try to do. And I think, and I thought a couple of comments on that. It's easy enough to criticize. You know, you can tear down the council, you can tear down Ajami, but we want to know if, in other words, this is it really, I call it mirror literature. It's really about mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the, you know, fairest of us on, it's America. That's, and if I call it mirror literature, it's really about us and not about the, uh, you know, the people we're supposed to be interested in. So if you want to get beyond mirror literature, some of the parts of our conversation has been, look, you have to travel. You're young. Look at that body. Move it. You know, <laughs> get out there. You know, you can do it. It's a 30-hour trip. It's a little bit rough. You know, we're get our age, but you guys can handle it. So first thing you got to do is you got to move. You got to travel. You know, you can't understand another world living in your own world and so totally. You know, secondly, you have to talk to people. I'll tell you a secret. It's a really you know closely guarded secret. In order to talk to people, you have to know their language. Isn't that a surprise? Yes, uh, there you go. You got another language. I want to tell you another. These languages are hard. Persian, Turkish, Arabic. It ain't easy. Ain. You know, even just to pronounce it, ah, you got to get it right from the back. How many people here have studied Arabic? Good for you. You know. You know the ain. It's tough. You can't get it out. And not, not, you work on it. You know the vocabulary. I was in, uh, a graduate student. I papered my room with one verb. You know, with all the different forms, all the different verb forms, and the gender forms. And, you know, I mean, it is a complicated, difficult language. So it is about, I don't want to minimize it. Start. You'd be surprised. Your brain now, the best it's going to be. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is the time. Do it. So that's the second thing. You've got to talk to people. You've got to know the language. Third recommendation to produce uh, scholarship, and uh, you, this is all sounding very anthropological. 
which I think has been some of the most useful literature we've had. I think uh, that uh, where people do go into the field, they do know the, the, uh, the language, and they sometimes do it imaginatively. That's our so-called historians. You know, they recreate this world, but they're interacting through the language. You know, and so the third, that my third recommendation for producing, you know, serious work about a people or a part of the world that's extraordinarily important to us. Go first, speak to people, and second, work with them on something. You know, work with them on something. Find a project. You would be surprised. Muslims, uh, we can say Sufis, Sunni, uh, Shafi'i uh, Madhab, we can, you know, uh, they're Salafis, they're Ikhwani, they're, uh, I'll tell you a human beings. Start with the idea, these are basically human beings. And then there are all these other things. And those other things are real and important and you've got to really understand them. They're not just like you. They're really not. It's different. But you can do it. If you remember they're human beings, if they're human beings, you're going to find something you can do in common with them. Some common project. Work on it with them. And I think it's probably the best way to get some sense of what's happening. So that would be my, my recommendation in terms of the literature, I think, is, is, is flawed. We don't have great literature. Uh, we need a new generation. You look like a new generation. <laughs> there you are. And you're in this fantastic facility. Uh, wonderful city, wonderful campus, good faculty. I mean, what are, what are you waiting for? You know what I mean? <laughs> do better than we did. We need a, 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 stronger, a stronger generation. Okay, I, uh, aside from that, the promise of new, there are other things you can do. I would recommend, since the mainstream has been so ineffectual, I would recommend two other strategies, because I know you're doing bibliographic work uh, for Bill's course. I would recommend, you know, if your Arabic isn't good enough to do Arab sources, do translations. Uh, there is some very good work by Galal Amin, A-M-I-N, Galal Amin, on Egypt. He's one of the major intellectuals uh, from Egypt. He's known throughout the Arab world. He's an economist and a social critic. He has a book, Egypt in the Era of Hosni Mubarak. It's a little bit of a condensation of it. It's not as sophisticated, and so, but still, you, you're, you're, you know what I mean? You're, you're having a kind of internal view by an extremely important intellectual who's got a sense of history, who's got a sense of the culture, and, and can speak in, in useful ways. So I think uh, that's an important possibility. I would also recommend <coughs> that you go to the margins of Western scholarship. There have been some, there's some very creative work on the margins. Recommend the book to you, Philip Marfleet and uh, Rabab Mahdi. It's a book that was written before the Egyptian Revolution, and it gives you a very good sense of what's coming. And it's on the margins in the sense it's a kind of left political economy critique. But they get an astonishing amount of things right. And it's written before the upheaval. So I think there are, uh, there are ways. The mainstream, not particularly helpful. But you've got you know, scholars from the area that you should take seriously. And then you've got people on the margins, which I think also should be. This is a place that tolerates uh, margins, this Mershon Center. I, I understand you even have folklorists here or something. So this happens. You know. this, is a, this is called ijtihad, by the way. Ijtihad means to interpret. You know, the Arabic word we all know is jihad, which means you know, we translate it, mistranslate it as holy war. Jihad, in fact, you know, Arabic is around the triliteral, the three roots. 
So it's J-H-D, jihad, but it really means struggle. And the struggle, the big jihad, the serious jihad, is the struggle you have every morning, you know, you're shaving, you look in the mirror, you remember what you did last night, oh my God. You know, the struggle with yourself, to be the better person. That's the great ijtihad. The lesser struggle is the ijtihad to protect the Islamic community, jihad. Jihad. Is to pre that, uh, the, I'm sorry, the jihad. And then, so that, the, that we have a sense of the jihad. The ijtihad is the struggle to understand. And you can see how the, the two are related, the same root. It's the struggle to understand something. So I understand there's been a creative ijtihad of security studies, which is appropriate. You have to have language, you have so who's security? Our security, we're people, we have language, we have culture, we have a history, we have a place in the world. And some of the people we're studying. So we need the anthropologists, we need the folklorists, we need the historians, you know, you need to have this expansive notion of security. It's not all about uh, <coughs> the weapons and the bombs. So that's, uh, okay, I wanted, uh, how much time do I have? About, oh. Seven minutes, maybe? Seven minutes, perfect. I had something planned, so it, was six, it was six and a half minutes. So we have enough for Q&A. Okay. What I wanted to talk about, I talked a little bit, in other words, the revolution itself. I was, what I was trying to give you is a little bit of a flavor for it, what it felt like to experience it. Secondly, that it does have an Islamic dimension. And that Islam, you know, one of the misreadings we take, you know, Jesus is Muhammad. No. The Quran is the holy. That if you're going to pay something, Jesus has to be the Quran. And it's the Quran, the difference between Christianity and Islam. The Quran stays on earth. We know that Jesus goes back to his Father in heaven. Left us. Right? The Quran didn't. So we've got the Quran. We have it uh, for guidance. And that's to build a worldly community. That's why I, I use the phrase worldly Islam. I think it's a worldly faith. It's closer to Judaism than Christianity in that uh, sense. So, there, so that's the, the sort of the second note in the, in the comments. Thirdly, I did want to be more practical. I know you guys are doing transitions to democracy or the possibility of democracy or prospects for democracy. So let me just say a few things about that. We've had kind of waves in our response to the Egyptian revolution. First, I was giving you a feel for it. We're a little bit drunk with all this. I mean, it was just such a rush. It was just this incredible experience globally. I mean, it really was. This was this extraordinary. That was the first moment. Second moment, the counter-revolutionary forces. The revolution from the beginning had enemies, and the enemies uh, begin to, uh, to rally. So we had a second moment in which the conversations with Cairo become more depressing. Who are the enemies of the revolution? Well, look, this was a system of governance. It wasn't just Mubarak. Around Mubarak was a coterie. Uh, it's a 1% kind of a phenomenon, probably a half of 1% phenomenon. Cairo's got gated communities. Cairo has malls that are, you know, marble. Cairo has health clubs that you would die for. I, I suspect that you guys have a good health club here. But anyway, you know, so you've got that thin stratum of the population that did extremely well during the Mubarak period. And they want to continue doing well, so they're fighting back. You had the military. The military played a role in Egypt. This is, of course, the link to the United States. The United States pays the bill for the military, so the military are closely uh, aligned with the, uh, with the Americans. The Americans, we know, this business about we stood on the right side of history, I think that was our president who said that, horseshit. We did not stand on the right side of history. 
come on, give me a break. We did everything possible to arrange a transition to another military dictator behind the scenes when Mubarak was beginning to totter. And you know, we did our best to hold him. It was only when, when the, the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people kept coming that you know, no way can we hold this wave back, right side of history. Reminds you a little bit of the success in Iraq. You know, no. So uh, you, know, you, have, you have enemies of the revolution. The United States is one of them. Israelis are second. Israel regarded Mubarak, the phrase was, uh, a treasure, a strategic treasure. So the loss of that strategic treasure, they're, they're bemoaning this and they'd like something back looking like it. Recently, an effort was made to take somebody from the Ancien Regime and put him forward, uh, Omar Suleiman, who's the kind of the face of the old regime, and make a, you know, this would be very reassuring to the Israelis. This would be very reassuring to the Americans. Why do the Americans want someone like Hosni Mubarak, a dictator, a corrupt dictator? Look, it's much easier to deal with that kind of a person. They have personal interests. They have their family network, billions of dollars they're stealing. They're busy. You just shake hands, slip them a couple of, you know, they're fine. It's much, you start dealing with a democratic system. Look, the, the Egyptians are not, we were talking about some of this just before I came over with my dear friend Bill, and he was like, doing the Israeli thing with me, and you know how sensitive that is. <laughs> you know. Look, I I'm going to tell you, these are all secrets. The Egyptians are not wild about the Israelis. The Egyptians are not wild about the peace process. The Egyptians think the peace process is not a peace process. They know the secret, they're right. It isn't. It hasn't been a peace process. This has been a fraud, and they know it's a fraud. So, if, you know, if you have a popular <laughs> revolution that expresses that, this is not helpful for American policy. This is the major thing we're interested in. Why do we help the Egyptians? Because we love Egyptians? No. We love Israel, and we wanted that kind of uh, peace, which isn't a peace. It's a, a permission slip to acquire land and territory. That's what's happening on the ground. So, you know, this another, these are enemies of the revolution. We tend to think of the enemies of the revolution as being the Muslim brothers. The real, the real fear, there's not going to be a democratic transposition because of these Islamists. The, the, the point, uh, the reality is, the Islamists have been extraordinarily expect, uh, you know, extraordinarily flexible. Uh, Islam, if I think about Islam as sort of here on the ground and then up here, and not too much in the middle, in terms of social stuff, that you know, how to pray, what direction, how to prepare for prayer, you know, very minute things that can make you feel like you're a good Muslim. Two of my four kids are Muslims, so they're being good little Muslims. And you know, you can do it, it's pretty easy, you can manage that. And then up here you have the big vision, justice, a just society. You know, and that's very evocative, it's very real, it's very powerful. Justice is probably after God, the word most used in the Quran. But you see, that's way up here. There's no particular economic system, there's no particular political system, there's no particular way to organize the military. It's all, it's the head, interpretation. So it's always the critical, the same thing with Islamic law. We, we, sometimes we talk about Islamic laws, you're going to the, you know, you're gonna go to the library, pull off the <laughs> books, like the law books, and you're going to implement it. No. Islamic law is simply the interpretation of Quran, the Hadith, and this developed body of scholarship over 1,400 years. Qaradawi, Yusuf al-Qaradawi, calls it an ocean of interpretation. So it's always, when someone says, I'm going to implement Sharia, the first question, who's Sharia? How are you interpreting it? Who's going to do the interpretation? See what I mean? So uh, these are uh, things uh, to, be, uh, to be considered. 
So the, and getting back to the theme of this uh, Democrat, so the, the Islamists have now emerged in the full light of day. And that's a positive thing, including the Salafis with their long beards. You know, it's, we know now who they are. We know what they say. They have to start defending themselves. What's happening both in Egypt and in Tunisia is a coming together of sort of middle class, liberal, heavily influenced by Abdul, the great, uh, you know, modernist uh, Islam. And they're trying to organize themselves, pulling themselves together. Tunisians call themselves a social democratic party. The Egyptians are having their meetings now to organize such a party. Galal Amin, whom I mentioned earlier, is part of, have you heard of the Jacobian building? It's a wonderful novel, Jacobian. Jacobian, a nice Armenian name. You know, Jacobian building. And Aswani is the, the figure. He, with Galal and some of the others, coming together, organizing a party. And what they do is they want to pull together these centrist, uh, we would call them, we probably would call them secularists, as a counterweight to the Islamists. The judges made an extraordinary ruling in Egypt. If you start getting depressed, democracy ain't going to happen. The judges just made this extraordinary ruling. The Egyptians were putting together a committee to draft a constitution. It was dominated by the Islamists, notably the Muslim Brothers. They had something like two-thirds, so people started pulling out. The judges then ruled that the committee had to be reconstituted. Fantastic. The parliament just passed a law. It was directed against this character I mentioned, Omar Suleiman, who's really the face of the Ancien Regime. The people from the Ancien Regime cannot be politically active. They cannot present themselves. So, you know, there is kind of underway now a democratic pushback. So, you know, you've got the energy of the revolutionaries, but you've got the beginning kind of more centrist uh, forces are moving. The Islamists are there in full light of day. They're not, they can be managed. They can be dealt with. I think that's the, uh, that's the reality, especially of the Muslim Brothers. The Muslim Brothers have been around since 1928. I actually interact with them as much as I can. They're powerful, right? We do security studies. We want to know who has power. <laughs> These people have power. They can move the street. Nasser needed them in 1952. A little coup, a couple of colonels. What are they going to do? Shit, no, nothing. Nobody knew who they were. So they got the Brotherhood with them made an alliance, and then of course once they consolidated power, they threw them in jail. Yeah, so that could happen again. Anyway, uh, you know, so the Brotherhood, as they interact with the Brotherhood, uh, I, was, I did a bet, actually, because I thought it was just would be a funny thing to do, a strange thing to do, to have a bet with a Muslim brother. You know what I mean? They're not supposed to be betting. <laughs> you know, so having lunch, sitting on a, you know, a, a veranda kind of a thing, we, we finish the prayers. I actually don't pray, but you know, they finish their prayers and we go out and we sit. And then we started talking about the, the, the brother and started talking about Saudi Arabia. I made a bet. I said, you know, you guys are older than Saudi Arabia. I was astonished. Muhammad Habib, who's the second in the brotherhood, said, no, we're not. I said, yes, you are. And I was right. And I won the bet. You say, we're the Muslim brother. They've been around since the 1920s. They're everywhere. Go visit Bill in Indonesia. You're going to find, you know, this Abdu tradition, which then goes to the brothers, which then goes to Hamas and Hezbollah, and has had influence throughout the earth. Said Qutb, whom we love to think about as the, the father of Al-Qaeda. <coughs> Said Qutb was major intellectual, murdered by the, the Nasserist regime, was also a great uh, Quranic scholar. It was a literary figure, has had influence throughout the area. So uh, anyway, getting back to the point, the democratic transition, the possibility and the hope is still there. 
that tremendous reservoir created by the revolution itself. People sometimes say nothing changed. I'll tell you what changed. Egyptians changed. They just no longer will accept what they once accepted. And that's an extraordinary change. And it's a very helpful. And I'm talking about ordinary Egyptians. Everybody. They just feel that, you know, look what we did. I mean, they, they know what they did was just really quite, quite extraordinary. So that gives us some hope. Are we there? Is this a democratic government? No. What is a democratic government, by the way? I know you're doing these papers, so we got to think about that. I was thinking about that when I woke up this morning. What is democracy? Do we know what it is? How good, you know, we, we sometimes speak as if we've got it in the bag. Well, look around. We're in trouble, I hate to tell you. You know, our system is not working. Our government is not working. Our president has far too much power. We're militarized the society in very unproductive ways for the military. Military called upon to do too many things in too many places that they're not equipped to do. What is this? We're in trouble. So our own democratic system, we can't simply take it as that we've got it and we can measure everybody else by it. I think we need something a little bit more abstract. What do we mean? We don't want excessive concentrations of power, absolute power. We want somehow rules that govern the way power is used. And we want to participate in making those rules. That would be my own sense of uh, what the essentials of democracy. And then we can look to experiences like the American experience like the European experiences, but not with the sense that we've got it made, because we don't. There you have it. Those are my comments. Just about on time? Yeah, thank you. Okay. We have about 20 minutes for questions. Great. I will field my own questions. Would you mind, I would like to suggest uh, this procedure. If you, you know, think about your questions, and then I'll take maybe three or four questions to make sure that everybody gets a chance to have their question considered, and then I'll answer them, like a cluster, and then answer, cluster, then answer. Yes, first one. In um, green. Okay. Islam. And then, in turn, uh, I imagine you're sort of desperate to impart um, some knowledge in their direction. What are you most desperate to convey to these people? Mm -hmm. Good. Okay. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. I'll talk about the briefings of ambassadors. Uh, you know, sometimes I'm in good graces, sometimes I'm not. You know, so we go sort of hot and cold. When I'm in good graces, I can brief the ambassadors to Arab countries. So I can talk a little bit about that. Other question? Yes. Uh, you mentioned there were like Islamic traits of the revolution, and you kind of pointed to uh, the communal aspects of the revolution. Mm -hmm. How is that different from, I guess, most of the other revolutions around the world? Like, it doesn't seem like that's really specific towards any certain contemplation. Okay, good, good comment. Yeah. Yes. It was the Nationalist Party, and the cops played an important part in it, absolutely. So who's there today to represent that, and if they do in Sharia, what's going to happen to that population? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, we need a third question. You have a question. You're smiling so much. You must have a question. Yeah. You have a question. Don't be shy. Don't be intimidated by Bill. He's very sweet. I mean, he is. 
There you go. He's not intimidated. The electoral court in the last couple days has come out and I thought eliminated three possible presidential candidates. What is the impact of that? Right. Okay, I think maybe that's, unless there's somebody else pressing. I was pressuring the women over here. Didn't work. Okay, think, because I'm coming back to you guys. I ain't leaving you. Okay. Okay, in terms of uh, what people are interested in, now, uh, when I, if I get a call from the intelligence community especially, I do believe, by the way, in speaking to the intelligence community. I do not believe in being paid by them. So I have, we do this ballet, sort of, so that I'm not paid by them. It's just not a good idea to be paid by the CIA and to live in Cairo. You know, it just doesn't, you know what I mean? So, so what I do is I say I'm happy to talk about the issue because I think it's important. I think an intelligence community is important. And I think if you feel like you have something you can contribute, you should, you should contribute it. So what I'll do is I'll say, why don't you get the State Department? to organize that. And then, you know, you guys come, and, and then I always know who they are. They're always really smart, and they always have their questions. They're not shy, you know. So, and, and what are they most interested in? They tend to be, of, I mean, I said it facetiously, but I meant that, Islam and the Islamic movement. So, you know, they've sort of gone through that. I mean, this is fun. Because as you know, in terms of, we had a Cold War ideology. I was trained, by the way, by Samuel Huntington. You may know class of civilization, security guys all know hunting really gods or something, you know, works on air or whatever, you know. So, and then my other uh, PhD was, was a guy named Nadav Safran. Nadav Safran was a Jewish Egyptian. He sort of saw me as his little uh, Egyptian boy. How he managed that, I have no idea, given this, but something like that. Anyway, uh, that, um, the preoccupation has been overwhelmingly with the Islamic and if you know Huntington's work, The Clash of Civilizations, you know he reserves a special antipathy, animus, whatever, uh, for Islam. You read, the, read that book, I think, I read, if you haven't read it, you really should, because you can understand a lot of the political discourse uh, by the book. Uh, extraordinarily influential text. If you Google it, your computer crashes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, everybody calls it. People don't read it, though, which is sort of nice. You know, so if you actually read it, it's, uh, it's an interesting book. Anyway, that, in terms of this enemies, I think that has a very nice statement. He says, you know, how do you define yourself? You define yourself by your enemy. And so it goes very easily from communism uh, to Islam, and Islam is the enemy, and Islam is the target. So then there are special, when you say Islam, how do you grab Islam by the tail? It's a little bit hard. So you go to the Islamic movements. And if you look at the Islamic movements globally, you know, throughout this area, the Muslim brothers are extraordinary have been extraordinarily influential. So that's been the focal point. More recently, though, it's been the Salafis. I mentioned the Salafis. They, I first heard of them when I was talking to young Egyptians. And I'm talking to them about some of the Muslim Brotherhood figures, or figures who come out of the Muslim Brothers. And they're telling me, no, no, it's Hassan. No, no, and they're giving me these names, which I didn't know I find them. And I can only find them up in the you know, satellites, because they can't touch ground. And they, uh, they they're really quite powerful speakers, and it's a kind of um, uh, it seems it, it seems very very extreme to me. So therefore, I want to get as close to them as possible. This is my mother's advice. That's why I studied with Huntington. My mom said, "Look, your friends are important. Your enemies are more." I mean, my his political views were not mine. 
So therefore, I figured the best place to be right next to him, so I know exactly what's going on. Same thing with the salafis. I mean, I really want to know the, <coughs> I really want to know these people. So that's where the preoccupation is now. <coughs> so it is, and I think it's a false um, sense of um, the security issue. Because I think, in fact, the Islamists, that was my sort of point, can be, this isn't the second part of the question, what could you, uh, is to reassure people, you can, in fact, deal with uh, the Islamists. What I would do would give them a list of names. Why don't you talk to Kamal Abumeg? Why don't you talk to Muhammad Asayman? Why don't you talk to ta 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 You know, to sort of open up that, which as you know, the government did, and it proved it's useful. So that's the kind of, of, of give and take. Um, everybody expected the, the Carnegie Endowment. That's a kind of, the Carnegie Endowment. That's a kind of continuing dialogue with right. the Muslim Brothers, right? Is that they have had that, and, and you know, the uh, Esposito at uh, Georgetown recently had a delegation of the Brothers come. You can get a clip of that one. I haven't seen the Carnegie thing. Yeah, Carnegie supported my book, actually. So yeah, they want to provide an alternative to this Huntington-esque view, uh, which is so anti-Islamic and so unhelpful. You know, it's a demonization, really. It's not really a study of the, the tradition. Speaking then about the tradition, when I say an Islamic character, I mean sort of very down-to-earth kind of things. If you're living in Cairo, when are the demonstrations? They're on Friday. Why are they on Friday? It's not Israel, they're not on Saturday. It's not America, they're not on Sunday. You know what I mean? This is Friday. There's a reason for that. One of the obligations on Muslims is that the community prayer has a higher you know, importance than the individual prayers during the day. So Friday is important. So, I mean, that's uh, you know, an Islamic <coughs> character. I'll give you another instance. Um, when the young people because sometimes young people, they look around and they're all young and it makes them nervous and they want a couple of people with white hair, you know, token other generation people, you know what I mean? So this happened to the Egyptian revolutionaries and they wanted a figure to address people in Tahrir Square. I don't, I have no sense of size, but three, three baseball fields or something, Tahrir is just a huge open space. And it's filled, you have to imagine the scene, it's just filled with people. Extraordinarily well ordered, by the way. I walk in, a young guy, again, he looks 12, probably 18, says to me, ah, i got to search you. Ah, excuse me, I'm so sorry, I don't mean to do this, I hope this is not insulting, please forgive me. Just exact, absolutely the politest kind of a search. But they're doing it self-regulate. Who is this guy? I don't know. He doesn't know me. You know what I mean? It's, just, it's spontaneous, spontaneously organized, and so that's this communal thing. Egyptians are very good at it. They protected themselves during these uh, difficult times with these kind of self-organizing mechanisms. Anyway, so we have Friday. Then my point was you got all these young people. They're self-organizing, but suddenly they say it would be nice to have an older person around. Who do they turn to? Yusuf al-Qaradawi. Yusuf al-Qaradawi is probably the, you know, the one of the most important, if not the most important, of Sunni sheikh. Uh, sheikhs, he's known throughout the Islamic world. And Karadawi comes and he gives the khutbah, which is like we call the sermon on Friday. He breaks all the rules, as only Karadawi can do. <coughs> he addresses the khutbah. It's supposed to be Muslims. It's supposed to be addressed to Muslims. He addresses it to Muslims and Christians. This is unprecedented. Only Karadawi could get away with it. You know, you have to have 40,000 books and uh, tons of articles and whatever in order to you know, break tradition like that. So he does it. Secondly, what does he do? He says to the young people, and he looks right at them, he says, oh, he's, you know, he's in his 80s. So he's still a young guy, a little bit older, a little bit older. And he's uh, saying to the young people, he says, he says, 
I want to kiss the hand of every young person who participated in these extraordinary events. It's a, little, it's a cultural thing. It's just, it's not done. You know what I mean? 80-year-olds don't kiss the hand of 20-year-olds. This is a total reversal. It's a very, why do I, well, I'm not going to retire probably to the Middle East, why? They're really deferential to older people. You know what I mean? This is a good position. Uh, so this doesn't happen. You see what I mean? And he, this is what he did. <coughs> he did so he had addressed it. You, uh, that's Islamic. They didn't pick a secular figure. They picked Qaradaw. Many of them are secular. But he's a kind of revered national figure that he can, and he can speak to both Christians and Muslims. Third, just a, a scene. <coughs> One of the most striking scenes, the things you could actually see in this grid. Of course, you know, you're generally you're all the YouTube, blah, 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 and you can still see all this stuff. You have demonstrations where uh, Muslims are praying, and they're, they're, the security people are there. So one of the things they did is they prayed right in front, and when you pray, you know, your head is down, you're totally vulnerable. <coughs> it was like, you may look impressive, but I'm not scared of you, I'm praying. Yeah, and they really act of boldness. And then another thing that would, would happen in the square is that Christians on, on Sunday would be there, the Muslims would be there on Friday praying, a cordon of Christians would protect the Muslims praying, a cordon of Muslims would protect the This is Islam at its best. That is, these are, you know, a recognition, Islam is not alone, Islam knows Judaism, Islam knows Christianity, Islam, you know, is open to those religious traditions. These are people of the book, they're rightful, they're there. So that seemed to me to have an Islamic character to it. So I think there, and there, there are probably more, but those are just a couple of examples. So that's our second question. <coughs> our third question, the fear uh, of the minorities. You see, we see this in Syria. Right? This is a terrible regime. The Islam regime is a family regime, it's terribly repressive. But we have to say to ourselves, um, this regime has support. By the time the Mubarak regime had the, the support had kind of that's not true it's here. And they have support of the Arab community, thus, you know, within Islam, sort of, because there are some, you know, groups and sects that are not quite Muslim by some people's eyes, they're very Muslim, you know, but, and then you've got the Christian minority, so it has support there. And the protection that the regime could offer to those communities, the Christians worry that what's going to happen, uh, you know, if you have uh, this uh, Muslim. So, you know, that, that kind of um, concern is there. Uh, it's a double-edged sword because it's obviously been something that has been manipulated there was a terrible instance of violence against Christians in Alexandria. And uh, uh, the uh, parallel was made just before the British uh, occupied Egypt had been a similar incident. And it was part of the rationale for occupation. So this idea of protecting the communities, is a, you know, on the one hand, it's real. Unlike, by the way, as an analyst, I like, I'm here and also here. I don't think you need to be in one place. You know, sometimes these issues are really complicated. You're in both places, and both, there's a truth of both, it's a question of, of weighing those truths depending on what your objectives are. So, you know, there, there's a reality to those concerns. The Muslim brothers have tried to address it. Young Muslims have tried to address it, broken off from the brothers. There's something called the Wasat party in Egypt. Wasat means center, it's a very Islamic notion. The center is where we should be. It's a privileging of the center. 
And um, so the Rasid party, these are younger Muslim brothers, not all that young, in their 40s so, who break off from the Muslim brothers as being it's too restrictive, and they create a Rasid party, and they made a great effort to involve Christians in the party. And they speak endlessly about the necessity, you know, it's not Zimmi, not these protected category of the traditional notion, no, these are citizens. And they, and they must be protected, and they must have full rights. They must have full rights, it's not any protection from the right word. They must have full rights as citizens. So it is a sensitive issue, where can they go? I'll tell you where they'll go, they'll go to that centrist party I was describing. It's just coming together. In other words, you do have, um, you know, you have, there's a Coptic businessman who's got a party, and everybody knows he, you know, that this is a party of polar attraction for the cops. The problem, though, if you're a minority, you don't want a small party that cuts you off from the rest of society, which you move on. You want some kind of a coalition. So that, that was part of my analysis of both Tunisia and Egypt, is that kind of a coalition is coming together. It's coming together in reaction to the electoral success of the Muslim brothers. Why were they successful? The Mubarak regime persecuted everybody else. If you were a liberal, if you were a leftist, if you were a whatever, a communist, you're in jail. So the only people who were left were the mosques, people in the mosques, because they had the mosque network that they could use to organize. So obviously, you see what I mean? So now that you've lifted that, but it's going to take them a while. The Muslim brothers have been doing this for a long time. It's going to take them a while. So they are coming together, and that's where the minorities will go. That's where the Christians will go. They will support that kind of a coalition. And I think it's happening in Tunisia, and it's happening in Egypt, and I think it's a very positive sign, a positive uh, development. What was the last one? Oh, the elimination of these uh, candidates, yes. That, from my point of view, if I were, and given my sort of definition of democracy, remember no absolute power, rule governed, and then citizens participate in the rulemaking. And number three is very important. I think that's an example of that, where the, the, there are rules in Egypt, and these presidential candidates broke one or another of those rules. And quite one of them <laughs> was uh, this. In essence, I mean, life is just so full of surprises, right? Who do you think the Salafi, there's a Salafi candidate, you know, white beard, satellite. Who do you think his mom is? What nationality do you think she has? American. <laughs> you know, she had American citizenship. So, you know, it's time to, you can't have American citizenship, that's one of the rules. So from my point of view, those eliminations were a good thing. They were a sign of one of the, the strengths of Egypt, one of the things that Mubarak was not fully successful in smashing, was a relatively independent judiciary. And some of the major intellectuals in Egyptian public life surprisingly come out of this uh, judges, and, and, you know, this group. So I think that was a positive development. And we've had a series of those. Uh, the parliament I mentioned passed a law that you couldn't be, they call them falul in Arabic, members of the old regime to restrict. So it's, it's trying, you know, rule governed behavior. Uh, there are too many candidates. Uh, they're not uh, coalescing around one. I mean, so that's what a lot of people look at what's happening in Tunisia, look what's happening in Egypt. Too many things are moving, too many parts, you know, too many tops are spinning. Everybody's participating. Who's participating? Young revolutionaries, old political party people new political party people. The military is playing around. You know, there's so many tops are now spinning, people are going nuts. Is that a bad thing? I think it's a good thing. I gotta tell you. I deal very well with chaos. I had six brothers and sisters. 
You know what I mean? Our house was chaotic. I think it's great. All this stuff is happening. It's a sign of vitality. A lot of the commentary is the reverse. They say Egypt is, de is de you know, descending into chaos. No. Political forces are emerging in the full light of day. Isn't it better to see them, to know what their ideas are, to engage them? And for the most part, it's been peaceful. I mean, that has been really extraordinary. The Tunisian Revolution and the Egyptian, the, the, the major thing I heard in the square was Semei, Semei, Semei. Peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. Even in the face of provocation. So I'm encouraged by that. Uh, that elimination, I think it was, it seemed, I mean, I try to follow it, it seems to me, it's almost so the amount, I mean, this is the face of the ancient regime, you can't do that. Yeah. And there, there are restrictions on that. To have, you know, so I think they were legitimate. They're still, you know, it hasn't coalesced. Uh, so they're, po they're postponing the Constitutional Convention, by the way. That's the other thing that's driving people nuts. Too many things are happening at once. It's like taking 200 years of American history and squeezing it into a few months. You know, you're doing these very basic self-definition, defining the political system, defining what participation means. All of these things are all happening. It's happening very fast. And, uh, you know, and these are serious issues. And those are our questions. We have one, maybe one more question. We have time for... Uh, yes. Right. Yeah, Almost guy too, so it's perfect. The girls have got a chance. I know. You think I listened to him? That's all aura. That's to make him feel good. But I'm going to do one more question. Yeah. I have just two quick things. Two quick questions, really fast. First thing. First of all, thanks for coming. I mean, it's amazing to hear some real life on the ground. Thanks coming to something that I'm studying so much and potentially writing on, but need to learn a lot more about. Mm -hmm. um, you said that there's a pervasive feeling of we've had enough, we've lost everything, we have no future. Right. A feeling of nothing to lose amongst all these uh, people on the ground mobilizing. Yet you also said amongst the security forces, excuse me, sort of the rank and file security forces, that they were young, poor, illiterate, and malnutritioned. Uh, uh, so I'm wondering, like, what's the huge difference there? It seems like, what do the rank and file security forces have to lose? They're going to be killed. What do the rank and file protesters have to lose? They're going to be killed. Is it that's other than that, they've been they haven't benefited under the regime, according to you. They have this sort of same position, and so I'm very interested in how you see differences between the rank and file security forces, police and military, versus the army commanders. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's a good point, and it's, it's like an apparent sort of contradiction. And I think the thing we have to remember about the security forces is that they are in this disciplined structure, which is really quite brutal. And the brutality is directed against them in the first instance. That's very different than sort of a university student, male, beard on there, who doesn't have a future, is no job. You know what I mean? They're, they're, they're operating in a different kind of a universe. So it is, to me, it's easy to understand how these people, with really the lowest of the low, often illiterate, often if you ask them what time it is, they don't know. Ask them, if you ask them any street, you know, can you tell me where so-and-so is? They don't know. They don't even know where they are. You know, really. That's very different than the desperate, you know, your generation hoping for a future as an engineer or a doctor or whatever, and then seeing that there are no resources. Education. Education is a critical factor, but it's also the, the horizon is wider. 
I mean, that's the extraordinary thing about your generation, right? I mean, one of the explanations of the Egyptian revolution is all technology. And then the, the neocons have tell us it's also, we had this idea, Bush was right, it's all about democracy, and everybody wants democracy. You know, all this sort of nonsense that's out there. But I mean, the, the technology stuff is important. And that's one of the things that the Kafaya people have. That's the, you know, this group that kind of coalesced around the slogan, is that they did have a sense of this wider world and that they deserved and should have a better place in it. And they did have a sense of their own you know, set of skills that they have. Whereas these, the, mis the miserable of the most miserable. Now we're ready for your question. Uh, I guess our question is, we've been reading a lot of books in our course about political language of Islam and um, how the opinions that people have about mm -hmm. Islam There he is. <laughs> there is your turkey man right there. I'm an interloper when it comes to turkey. I love turkey. And I swing to turkey. You can answer that at the I was giving my colleague an opportunity. He cared to say something. No, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I mentioned this actually to Professor Kamen. I mentioned that I was asked to do a review by Political Science Journal. And the review was on the Turkish model. And what was struck me, I mean, my review wasn't all that positive, because the person was talking about the Turkish model for the Arab world. And there was no real consideration. It's a little bit the point I was making before. If you're going to talk about the Arab world, well, how about asking the Arabs? You know, what do you, what do you guys think about Turkey? Why not, right? I mean, but there was none of that. So it was like a purely speculative thing. So I use that little you know, vignette as a kind of a point of a point of entry. Living in Cairo and interacting with Egyptian intellectuals, they do look to Turkey. They do think there's something really quite uh, impressive about this Turkish experience. They do see it as you know two phases: the Auto-Turk and the secularism, the attack on Islam, and stuff like that. Then they see this new trend of Islam, where it's very clever. It's about the Islamic reference or background. It's not an Islamic party, but it has roots in Islam. They think that that might be something that could work for them. And they tried doing that. And then the regime, the Mubarak regime, not only banned an Islamic party, but a party with Islamic roots. Now, where did that come from? The Turks. So there has been a tension to this. Because the notion, I mean, there is something sort of Problematic. Bill and I started talking a, bit, a little bit about this, um, this, this larger issue of Islam's view of these things. The separation of church and state idea is a little bit hard when you don't have a church. There's no church. So the whole idea, it's a little bit like somebody, what are you talking about? Church and state? We don't have a church. That's hard. You know, so it doesn't make <coughs> a lot of sense. It also doesn't make a lot of sense to take the sacred 
and the worldly, because I don't like the word secular, the worldly, and put them as you know, completely separate, you know, separate spheres, when in fact, to be a spiritual person, to live a spiritual life, has to do with the world. You cannot do that divorced from the world. It has to do with the way you interact with other human beings, has to do with the way you raise your family, the way you raise your children, has to do with all of these very worldly things. So the whole conceptualization doesn't make a lot of sense to them. So I, I think it's not a particularly helpful way to frame the discussion. It's too much a part of what we do. Because we are in the West, has been the dominant, the most powerful, that doesn't mean that Western mo models of all sorts of things are the appropriate models by which to measure something. I try to suggest that in an indirect way by saying, hey, we, have a, we don't have our shit together either on democracy. You know what I mean? We've we got a long way to go. It's a process. So I mean, that, that was a little bit directed to that. But also, the modeling of democratic systems is not necessarily universal. And that shouldn't be the measure. What you should look at is the, the development of the tradition itself and how can it accommodate the things you're interested in. Rights for women, rights for minorities, respect for uh, diversity, pluralism. How can you do that within the Islamic tradition? And it will unfold. Thank you. Thank you. We have to start. We have to start. Thank you. This uh, article that we're reviewing was a